Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are finally getting back to Gehenna to go through each of the four layers of the plane. We got like a little commuted sentence and now we have to come back. <laughs> yeah, we had planned on doing this a couple weeks ago and then Dr. Krell's album came out and we figured that that was the perfect time for us to finally get her on the show. And so we got Gehenna put on the back burner for a little bit. And that was a very fun interview, too. So totally worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say as bad as Gehenna is, it's not as bleak as some of the other areas we've covered. I mean, this one doesn't make me feel icky and gross at the end of the recording. So um, (laughs) it's not so bad. It's okay. It's, It's not as bad as it could be. It does do what it says on the label. It does. There are no hidden insidious plots. I mean, you go into Gehenna, everyone's out to get you. Yeah. It's clear and obvious from the start. It's obvious from the start. You get what you get. What I like about this is even while it is very bleak, as the title of the plan suggests, it doesn't have that like back psychological despair and dread to it. Like the shadow fell, uh, notably, um, was it Hades? I believe it was Hades. Yeah. yeah, yeah that, Hades. Some of these places just have this ick to them. And again, from a psychological standpoint, even as you're reading this stuff, I love game immersion. That's what makes games for me. And D&D can be extremely immersive, even when you're reading the lore and just dealing with those places. Like it makes you want some chocolate afterwards. You know, you're, yeah, I've got no Patronus. And I'm just sitting there like, damn, I, I need something to make you feel better now you know this place doesn't do that this place while it's bleak you definitely don't want to spend here a long time it's interesting but it doesn't make me as a player not necessarily a player character but as a player feel bad for being here so yeah i can sympathize with that it's not arcadia no (laughs) (laughs) arcadia was the low point i think for, for where we were going through Anyhow, let's go ahead and dive straight in because we've got a bunch of stuff to cover and a little bit of time to do it. Well, let's go on both feet. Yep. All right. So the first layer of Gehenna is called Collis. Collis is the quote unquote habitable layer of Gehenna. It's the layer that's putting the least effort into trying to kill you. Well, there's that. Yeah. It's not that it's not dangerous. It's that it's the least dangerous of the four layers. While there are no plants native to Gehenna and nothing plant-like grows in Gehenna, Collis is the one layer that actually has water. There's a whole bunch of various rivers and waterfalls and whatnot all across this particular layer. But despite the fact that there's all this water, it's best not to drink it. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Exactly. (laughs) Just like that first layer of pandemonium, uh, where you don't know if the river that you're coming to is the sticks or not. You also don't necessarily know that from a glance here in Collis, because this is the layer that the river sticks flows through. And so if you know where to go, you can get to the river sticks and get 
out of Gehenna. Or if you're following the River Styx to get into Gehenna, this is where you will spit out. I was going to say this level is really one of the times that you're going to want to use the cleric's like create water ability that generally gets overshot in most games because most things are done on the material plane. And, hey, look, there's a river, there's a well, you can just stick your head in it and do whatever. But here, as with some of the outer planes as well, that spell will make or break a party if you're doing a survival element to your game. Yeah, but you're also going to run into the issue of the way that magic is affected by the plane here in Gehenna, because that would be classified as a beneficial spell. So you're going to have to succeed on a charisma save to even have it work. Yeah, but it's better to take a roll than have nothing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I would not recommend sending a party to Gehenna before, say, about 8th level. I'd say that that would be a good place to start getting into some of these because it is a very dangerous location. Yes. And so they need some of those abilities. They need that hit point pool to whittle down. And a small trove of magic items. <laughs> and a small trove of magic items. That is that is very true. So, you know, Create Water is a first level spell. And so by the time you're 8th level, if you're a full caster, you've got, what, about 10 spell slots to use every day? You have the resources there. If you fail, you can try again. Yeah, don't Whereas, don't burn your one one level spell slot game and try to create water and fail your roll. Or you know, because I think a first level cleric has what two first level spell slots. Yeah. So if they try and they fail on their first attempt, they can try again, and if they succeed, they have water to drink for the day. But if they try again, they are tapped for spell slots. That means that there's no magical healing. That means there's no bless. That means you know none of the other utility things that a cleric can do. And that's another reason why I would strongly recommend not sending low-level player characters to Gehenna. It is not conducive to a surviving party. Right. Anyway, getting back to the water situation here on Kallus, just going up to a river, you can't tell what the source of the water is because like I said, the river sticks does flow through, but there are a lot of other aquifers and springs that are actually originating here in Gehenna. So if you're drinking the water on Gehenna at best, you're drinking water from the river sticks and it wipes your memory. <laughs> that is the best possible outcome. Yes. At worst, you end up succumbing to heavy metal poisoning because of all of the heavy metals and the poisonous elements coming off of the lava flows that's leaching into the water. Or you end up catching a magical disease because of some sort of spiritual taint on the water that makes your skin slough off and your body twist and contort until you are this gross misshapen thing. Sure, we can do this, but I can't do about flies on Create a Monster, really? Really? <laughs> Well, I mean, I didn't write this. <laughs> Let's be completely honest here. Uh, and while there are lots of waterfalls where, you know, the various rivers drop off of the cliffs of the plain, uh, because there is nothing flat here, many of these waterfalls never actually reach the bottom of the cliff that they're falling off of because of the ambient heat in the plain. Most of it evaporates into this cloud of mist about two-thirds of the way down. So Which, I mean, that would give a really cool visual effect, just these giant oh, yeah. low-hanging clouds, yeah. It's going to feel kind of like what Tennessee does this time of year. That's kind of nasty. Disgusting. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Only that, you know, you're going to end up having things like sulfuric acid and stuff in those clouds because it's coming off of all of these, you know. Mineral lava flows, right. Yeah. The only waterfalls that actually reach the bottom and don't do this are the ones for the river sticks. So if you spot a waterfall that actually reaches the bottom and flows away, chances are pretty good that you have found the river sticks. And it's just due to the magical nature of the river that it doesn't evaporate away the way that all of the other rivers here in Gehenna do. Gotcha. Whenever you're traveling around Collis, you still have to be very wary of where you step because sometimes you can step in just the wrong spot and the crust cracks open and a gout of lava shoots up out of the ground. And you have to make a deck save or take 6d6 fire damage per round. I think a really good way to visualize this is if you ever see like the videos of the volcanologist where they're taking the magma samples off of like new lava flows where they've got that crust and they've got the little crucible scoop, but they can kind of just tap the top and kind of start scraping and it looks like a rock. But when they start scraping, you can see the hot molten magma up underneath. It's like that. So yeah, it is very thin. Just think you're playing a very challenging game with the floor is lava. And you're not too far Because the floor is actually actually lava. lava. Yes. Again, as a player, this is where you'd want something with a magical weapon with some sort of reach. So you could kind of maybe poke at the ground as you go. Ten foot poles. Yes. Ten foot poles. Ten foot poles. But again, too, depending on what they're made of, how, how fast they burn up with the heat or whatnot, depending on your DM. But yeah, you're definitely going to want like a druid, a ranger, a rogue, or a bard with that survival skill so they can kind of create a path for your party to go through. As a DM, this could be a really fun way to do a map even if it's a battle map or a travel map, is you can go and you can just blot out sections of the map to bottleneck or cutoff areas that maybe have this thinner crust up top that unless your players make a perception check even to see if that's going to support the weight in the midst of battle or if they're running or fleeing from something, that if they're not checking to see where they're putting their feet, they're stepping in some gunk. Yeah, and this would be one of those instances where you can actually use your character's height and weight. Yes. That block of their character sheet that nobody ever uses in actual gameplay. You can take your character's weight and you can decide, okay, here is where the lava is. Here is where it starts crusting over. As you get closer, it can support less weight. So your lighter characters can go on thinner crust of stone over the magma than your heavier characters can. I like that. The other thing I would consider is maybe tying like an athletics or acrobatics check to it and then giving a penalty or disadvantage after a certain weight level. So you don't have to explain exactly what they're rolling for until they pass or fail. And it's like, yeah, okay, and, you know, and so... And it only takes like- one person falling through into the lava to really... Uh, cement exactly what those rolls are for (laughs) right exactly but you could almost make this exactly like walking on a frozen lake and so you can start hearing that crack and then okay you're on a thin crust you're on thin ice what do you do you know and try to play it out that way would actually be a really interesting way to run that scenario and going back to the 10 foot pole thing if you have a druid in your party or somebody who has access to the shillelagh cantrip oh shillelagh you cast shillelagh on the 10 foot pole (laughs) Now that 10-foot pole is a magical weapon. Yes. And so you can poke and prod with it and not have to worry as much about it suddenly becoming consumed with fire if you poke it into the lava. Or if you 
want to really sort of overcompensate before you head off into Gehenna you go and find a quality dwarven smith and have them make you an adamantine 10 foot pole you would have to know you're coming here first pretty much but yes oh yeah absolutely but just think about it that would be the ideal that piece would be of adventuring equipment yes and what you do is you make it as two five foot poles that thread together so that way you can break it down and store it whenever you're not using it. I like it. Then you give it to your party without them knowing you're coming here. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? And see how long it takes them to figure oh, it out. Anyone who has been playing D&D for any real length of time and understands the functionality of a 10-foot pole will <laughs> jump at the chance to have a collapsible adamantine 10-foot pole. Yes. I mean, having a 10-foot pole that you can put into a trap and spring that trap and have the 10-foot pole emerge unscathed from the trap. It's quite nice. Yeah. You're basically giving them a functionally indestructible 10-foot pole. Yes. I mean, it would take something like a disintegrate spell to get rid of this thing. Exactly. But yeah, that is definitely something to consider if you are going to be sending them in and they know that they're going into Gehenna. That might be something that would be a recommended piece of adventuring gear. And going back to the floor is lava. Even if you don't get into proper lava, merely touching the ground with exposed skin deals 1d2 fire damage because the ground is that hot. It's like the videos that you see of people cracking an egg on the sidewalk in the American Southwest and it cooks the egg on the sidewalk. Yes, no, I've got that's to... kind of what you get going on here. I was able to do that as a child where I grew up. So yeah, that's fun memories with that. Yeah, so that's the basics of this layer. You know, it has these lava gouts that will randomly come up and spew lava everywhere and burn you. And if you touch it with your bare skin, you're going to get burned. And that's the most hospitable layer yeah, so far. This is as good as it gets. There are a couple of locations here in the first layer. The first one in the second edition books is referenced as the Abominations layer. This one, I actually ended up going on Twitter and asking for help with the origins of this monster because it's not in any of the books that I possess. The classification of monster is the Anshe, uh, plural Anshalen, and they are a type of aberration from the second edition book birthright setting and aj pickett who we have mentioned a few times here on the show actually responded and said hey i don't know anything about them but here's an article and so that's, that's pretty that's, obscure if aj can't pull aj is an absolute fount of knowledge and so if if he's rolling ones on his checks then that's <laughs> as i understood he doesn't know a lot about the birthright setting in general Gotcha. Because it was a very niche setting and it wasn't one that was very popular. I was going to say, I hadn't come across it before. Yeah, it wasn't before. like Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or Dark Sun. And from what I understand, he focuses a bit more on Spelljammer because a lot of his stuff is set in and around Toral. So it makes sense that he's not real knowledgeable about the Birthright setting. I also added Matt Colville because I know that he knows a decent amount about the Birthright setting. He's actually done a few videos in his uh, Running the Game series about the Birthright setting. I didn't hear back from him, but that's okay. <laughs> so the Abominations Lair is home to one of these Anshay, known as the Blowfish. 
And all that I was able to really find about the blowfish is that... They're terrifying. Well, aside from what is listed in the Planescape book, the blowfish is a controversial entity, especially within the greater birthright community. Because the few mentions that I found of the blowfish on the birthright forums, most of them were along the lines of, that one's not actually an Anshay because it's not in the setting. It's a Planescape thing and not a birthright thing. And also because the Blowfish is a stupid name and if he ever actually came to the birthright setting, he would get laughed at until he left. So apparently they didn't like this guy. <laughs> From what I was able to gather, the Anshalin were created by an evil god in the setting called Azrai the Corrupter. I wasn't able to figure out a whole lot about it. It involves blood magic to a certain extent because the Anshalin themselves gain power through a practice called blood theft, where as far as I can tell, they basically draw the essence of a creature from its blood okay. upon killing it. Okay. And there are different categories of on Shalin. There are some creatures within the setting that are classified as on Shalin because they managed to kill one of these on Shalin scions and in killing and eating it because they were predatory creatures, they gained that power. So like the Hydra is considered an on in this setting because it killed a scion and ate it and it gained its blood power through that process. I think an interesting example of this blood theft is actually something I watched fairly recently, but the Netflix version of Dracula, which actually seems fairly well done from what I've so watched the first episode. Each episode's like an hour and a half. But in this case, Dracula has the ability that whenever he drinks any amount of blood from a victim, he can get their life memories from that blood and gain various forms of knowledge and things like that. But again, it's from that he is stealing basically their life essence and collecting bits of them in this fashion, which I thought was a nice little twist to it. Yeah. All right. So the blowfish appears as a humanoid with blackened skin as if it's been charred, which is appropriate given the, you know, volcanic setting. Given the environment. <laughs> but their quote unquote skin isn't actually skin. It's actually a mass of foot-long spines that he's able to puff out whenever he gets angry or threatened. And each of these spines has a toxin on it that if you get hit by them, you have to save versus poison. It was at a minus four penalty in second edition, so that would probably be like a con save with disadvantage. And if you fail, you die in 1d4 rounds. Oops. Yeah, it is a save or die poison. At penalty, if you touch him. Yeah, again, second edition just slaughtered characters. They're, they're, it was yeah. a very rough edition. And he was a real rough character to begin with because he was a 12-hit-die monster. Sweet Jesus. Which is pretty substantial. Yes. And his spines also let him draw in the blood from his victims. They were his instrument for blood theft. He lives in this cave that is sort of tucked away in one of these little secluded corners of Collis. He just wants to be left alone, really, and just sort of sitting up there minding his own business. And he goes out of his way to kill anything or anyone who gets too close to his cave. So he's very territorial. I kind of like this dude, you know, just leave me alone. If you're going to mess with me, I'll wreck your day. Okay. I like him. The cave that he is living in 
is actually kind of boring for a cave in Gehenna. It's a relatively large magma chamber. It's got this magma pool near the entrance and this sort of cloud of noxious gases that just sort of flows through the cave that acts as the cloud kill spell. Well, because, you know, he wasn't terrifying enough on his own. We've got just active cloud kill. (laughs) Oh, and if you want to go a step further, he's actually empowered by these gases whenever he happens to be in his cave. So he gets an extra two hit dice. Oh, snazzy. Yeah, it's great. He's even decorated the place a bit, you know, making it more homey by hanging up things like the skins of his fallen enemies. You know, just, just, just a little yeah. interior decorating. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> a little bloodbath and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. That was a good one. Thank you. But the thing that is really making the blowfish dangerous, especially in the Planescape setting, is that he has started to specifically hunt and feed on the proxies of the gods. And in doing so, he gains substantially more power through his blood theft because he is drawing in the divine essence that these proxies have been bestowed by their gods. So he is actually growing stronger, faster, and he's mutating more quickly because he is gaining additional power. I like this dude. So he's terrifying. Um, (laughs) And I mean, that's pretty much him. No, I mean, again, kind of an obscure character, but definitely has a lot going from this would absolutely be an easy BBEG for your party. Because again, this isn't going to be a pushover. This is definitely like maybe right before you're able to hit that next tier 15 plus, this would be like your boss to limit to that next level going up. Definitely someone maybe to round out your trip to Gehenna. Absolutely not a pushover. As a party, you know, you definitely want to hit him from range. Maybe use your cleric's wind ability to kind of push back that cloud kill spell and those gases, and then somehow lock him down. And again, you don't want to get close to this dude. So that would be method of attacking. But bringing yeah. the party through the wastelands of Gehenna to either somehow maybe talk and trade with this guy, maybe, because again, he doesn't sound like he is overly hostile he's more defensive and territorial so maybe he has some information you need maybe he's stolen something or gathered some information from one of these proxies and so you can go up and that gives you also a chance to rp and maybe you know diffuse a situation without a combat check and then everything goes sideways because every party gets a bunch of murder hobos and they get what they get i would definitely see this more as an objective rather than a final boss he doesn't have a reason to be a final boss unless the reason is you know you're serving a god who is located within gehenna so this would be like an evil campaign and your god is sending you to go deal with him because their proxies have been going missing yeah you know that's that's about the upper limit of where i would involve him And yeah, what you would want to do from my tactical perspective, you're wanting to linger on the perimeter of his territory to draw him out because you don't want to fight him in his lair. Absolutely not. You want to do everything in your power to fight him outside of his lair. But as a DM, you're going to draw him out like that. They're going to fight. And if the fight starts going poorly, the blowfish is just going to retreat to his lair and so you end up having this two-phase fight phase one is they spring an ambush and they get some good hits in on him and then he's able to escape and then phase two is they track him back to his lair and now he has home field advantage but he's only at like a third of his health and so you got as much fight the lair as you do fight the blowfish okay yeah no that would work 
The only thing I would want, I don't know. And again, the save or die poisons don't translate terribly, terribly well to fifth edition from second. Because again, that is an easy way to wipe a favorite character or a party member. So this would definitely be in a more hardcore campaign setting. This would definitely yeah. be something where you don't spring this guy on a bunch of new players anyway. Again, that save or die poison is, that's a rough one. In fifth edition, what I would do is I would have it deal a huge amount of poison damage that bypasses poison resistance. Okay, I could see that, kind of like our shale monster had. Also, I would have it imbue the poison status effect as well. And I think those two things would balance out fairly well, I believe. Right, and have it where if you are reduced to zero hit points by the poison, you have disadvantage on your death saves. That makes perfect sense. Because it is an especially virulent and especially powerful poison. Poison, yeah. And then maybe even go so far as to say you have to use a greater restoration to clear it. So you can't just use a lesser restoration or a neutralized poison to do that. Okay. You would have to use a more powerful spell because it is sort of a divine magical gift. So it is a magical poison as opposed to a mundane poison. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that in the world building aspect of things. That makes me want to deal with this a little bit more. But anyway, let's let's go ahead and move on. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the next location here in Kalis is the Teardrop Palace. Uh, We mentioned this last time. This is the realm of Sunshang, who is the god of thieves and trickery in the celestial bureaucracy, the D&D version of the Chinese pantheon. Sunshang is himself a three-faced, eight-armed god, and his realm is filled with symbolism of creatures with many arms and long reaches. So he's a decapod. Yeah, predominantly sea creatures. At first glance, whenever you first spot the realm as you're floating down the river Styx, it doesn't look that big. It's a pagoda and two shrines next to it with a bustling little bazaar in between the pagoda and the shrines and this nice little wrought iron fence that encircles the whole thing. Okay. But as you get closer to it, it appears to get bigger, but actually what's happening is you are shrinking in size. That's kind of awesome. And the line from the book is, a body approaches the teardrop palace as an insignificant ant and knows exactly the god's opinion of him. Impressive, I like. So whenever you get in to the actual courtyard of the realm itself, the pagoda with the actual teardrop palace, it's got stairs leading up to it, just like normal. But as you get there, the stairs are going to be like seven feet tall. They're going to be like mini cliffs all the way up. Yeah, you're going to need spider climber or grappling hooker for. And so most people end up just walking up the gutter that runs along either side of the stairs, further emphasizing their place in their god's eyes. Classy. (laughs) Yeah. He's all about the symbolism, yo. (laughs) And so the teardrop palace itself is this large, they're calling it a nautiloid pagoda. I'm not entirely certain of how it's arranged the way that i am picturing it is that the pagoda itself the top of it is shaped like a nautilus shell and you end up whenever you pass through the doors you're entering that open section of the nautilus shell that's how i'm that's how i picture it too and then it's just sectioned off inside and that would make perfect sense as well yes 
Okay. Uh, once you get inside, and anybody who is visiting can get inside, he doesn't care who comes in. He cares what they do once they get inside. Everyone is expected to pay their respects to one of Sung Shang's avatars. The one that is listed in the book is a monstrous jellyfish. And beneath the temple lies its inverse, so an inverted nautilus shell. And at the bottom is this pit where Sung Shang makes all of his deals. And it is rumored that Sung Shang can afford to make his realm infinite because he steals fragments of the other gods' realms and incorporates them into his own. I'm just going to yoink a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's kind of impressive. Well, he's a god of thieves, of course. That's yeah. what he's going to do. Makes sense. And whenever the gods come looking for their lost territory, either to make an accusation like, hey, you stole something of mine, I want it back, or coming to say, hey, somebody stole my stuff. Can you help me find who it was? He uh, imprisons them within his palace. Well, you know, as you do. Although some say that he doesn't actually imprison the gods. He just steals fragments off of them, like a breath or a glimpse from their eye. Some sort of small little thing that definitely has power because it's associated with a deity. But it steals that little snippet, something that's so small that won't really be missed unless they're really paying attention. And he sort of squirrels it away in his stash And that's where he keeps drawing more and more of his power from. I love this. As he's considered part of the realm of the, quote, celestial bureaucracy, he is the god of skimming off the top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Due to the size-altering elements of the plane, whenever visitors first come to the palace, they have to make a saving throw. It was versus spells in second edition. It would be a wisdom saving throw in fifth edition. Or they take a minus one penalty on all wisdom checks and saving throws for the remainder of that visit and for the entirety of the next three times they visit the realm. Oh, wow. And I would say that until you succeed on a saving throw, you still have to make that check every single time you show up. And so it pushes the duration out further each time you fail. No, I like so that. So it just resets it to where, okay, this one doesn't count towards your three. You still have yeah. three more visits with this yes. penalty. You got to come and have your card punched. <laughs> yeah. So the two shrines outside of the palace are maintained by Sung Shang's two Gareleth proxies. We mentioned them last time, Smol and Rock. And they are constantly scheming and plotting against one another. But they don't dare leave their shrine lest they give the other one a chance to despoil the shrine while they're gone. So they have to stay home and man the fort to make sure that their opponent doesn't get up to any hijinks. Right. But they will constantly use minions to carry out their plots and schemes whether they're willing or not. Okay. So they just assign these things to the other visitors within the shrine. So if a traveler visiting the shrines draws the attention of one or both of these uh, Gareleths, they may just decide to turn that particular traveler into their pawn for their schemes back and forth. (laughs) And they they could both choose this same traveler to do completely contradictory things for them <laughs> as this is a realm of a god of trickery and deception and thievery i think that is 
probably more likely to happen than not. Yeah, and that is definitely something where the DM can have a ton of fun with their players, especially if they have a rogue in the party. Yes, or even within the party, giving conflicting goals to various members within the party and letting the party try to sort it out. Absolutely. As a DM, I enjoy inter-party conflict, not necessarily to the point where the party is going to combat and break itself apart, but enough where they kind of pull not always in the same direction, just to build up on the role play to see how they are going to manage and maneuver around each other. Yeah. All right. The last detail of this realm is the bazaar. The bazaar sits between the shrines and the palace, and you can find basically anything that you could possibly find in the multiverse. I like Um, it. Everything within the bazaar has been stolen. (laughs) That makes me smile in a weird way. And is being sold at greatly inflated prices. It's run by Ferengi. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And... They're being sold at greatly inflated prices because they can get away with it. Because it is literally the only place to buy things in Gehenna. It is the only marketplace within the entire plane. So when you're the only game in town, you can set your prices to whatever you want. This is where you can find your 10-foot adamantine pole, but it's going to cost you about 100 platinum. Probably. (laughs) But yeah, that is your location of last resort. Like, I have to have this thing. There's only like three of them existing in the multiverse, but I have to have it. It's the Walmart and the tourist trap town. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a Walmart in North Myrtle Beach. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Or right next to Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. All these people in the hotel and you know, they all forgot like bathing suits and toothbrushes and stuff. So we're just going to go ahead and roll back, roll up. (laughs) All right. The last location we want to talk about is actually one that moves from layer to layer, but I decided to put it here just to get it out of the way. It's the crawling city. It's not Howl's Moving Uh, Castle. It is not Howl's Moving Castle. This is Howl's Moving Castle's evil twin. Gotcha. It is a massive city constructed of obsidian and ash, and it bounces from layer to layer at the whim of its master, the General of Gehenna. We mentioned the General last time we were in Gehenna. The General of Gehenna is an Ultraloth and is the most powerful single Yugoloth of all of the Yugoloths. He is basically a demigod in his power level. He's basically on Bernaloth level. So the creatures that created the Yugoloths, he's almost to that level of power. And this is his city. He gets to dictate where it goes, when it goes, what it does till the end of time. Gotcha, gotcha. The city itself walks around on thousands of these massive fiendish legs. The legs all end in these very gnarly clawed feet that allow it to climb even the steepest slopes within Gehenna. So it just walks wherever it wants to. And the legs themselves are immune to fire. So he can walk straight through the lava without any issue whatsoever. I was going to say it'd be a little awkward if they weren't. Um, (laughs) It feels like the Baba Yaga hut than free fried chicken. But right. But this does suggest that he probably only goes to the first two layers. He probably doesn't go to the third or fourth layer because they are very cold. So unless the legs are also immune to cold damage, which I don't see why they couldn't be. It's just not listed as a feature. Gotcha. I would imagine they would be. But again, if it's not listed, then he probably doesn't spend a whole lot of time there. 
Also, too, depending, I don't know, because again, this is supposed to be two floating moats that are basically like two tetrahedrons stacked on top of each other. They're going to look kind of like a D8. No, four. It's four. It's four, four total. I thought there was two moats, so there were kind of... No, there are, there are four moats. Okay. There's four moats, but I thought... They, are not, they are not a top and a bottom. They are each their own thing. Okay. I pictured that in my mind wrong. So there you go. Um, never mind then. Moving along. Yeah. Anyway. Within the lower levels of the city, he has numerous barracks where all of the devilish, demonic, and other elite mercenary groups that he has under contract in the city, that's where they stay. And he also has numerous siege towers throughout the city that are housing very potent war magic. So he has lots of boom if he ever decides that he needs to use it. I do like There's also a war academy within the city where the various fiendish strategists teach up and coming officers bound for the blood war, the various tactics for fighting within the blood war. And there are massive smithies that are constantly just churning out the latest of fiendish military hardware. So they are full on fueling the Yugoloth portion of the blood war, wherever those Yugoloths end up being. Um, And despite Having existed for millennia, the crawling city has never actually directly entered the Blood War. Because it ruined the game. Well, there is a prophecy that says that if it ever does enter the Blood War, the Blood War will finally reach its conclusion in an apocalyptic final battle. Yeah. So if the crawling city enters the war, the war is about to be over. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, it ruins the game. The Blood War is just fun. It's there. They're enjoying themselves. That's fine. They don't want it to end yet. It's like when you have those siblings that are fighting just because they're bored. And it's not that they're necessarily mad at each other. They just want something to do. So they don't really want the fight or argument to end. It's kind of like that. Yeah, sort of like that. All right. So that pretty much takes care of the first level. Uh, Heading into the second layer. Second layer is... Kamada. Now, I do have to admit, the first time I read that, my brain had to do a double take because I thought it was chlamydia. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. It well, is It is not. just as bad. It is not the clap. No. <laughs> um, Mount clap. It does burn, though. So <laughs> Yes. There you go. <laughs> so, by contrast to Kalis, Kamada is the least hospitable layer of Gehenna. The entire moat is constantly oozing lava like pus from a wound. And I realize I'm not doing anything to dissuade you from your initial assumption. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, So the lava bursts still happen here like they do in Kalis, but whenever they go off, they spew lava in an area hundreds of feet in diameter. So you got the world's worst fireball because everyone's getting splattered. Mm. So touching the ground with exposed flesh instead deals 1d6 fire damage per round that you're in contact with it and causes anything that is not specially treated to resist fire to ignite. Yeah, I'm still not seeing anything to dissuade me here. (laughs) (laughs) There are rivers of magma that are thousands of miles wide that just sort of flow down the slopes of the volcano that barely have time to cool before the next river sluices over the top of it. So the ground frequently looks solid, but it's actually just a thin crust over the latest flow. And if you're not careful, you're falling through into lava and goodbye your character. And then the coup de gras is that the entire layer, except for some briefly existent 
uh, magma chamber caves that you can hide away in until they melt and fall apart. All of it is under the effects of the stinking cloud spell Mm. uh, emanating from the stench of sulfur and charred flesh. Yeah, that just sounds like a pleasant place to go. Let's go there. Yeah. So there are a couple of interesting locations here in Kamada. The first one I really love, I want to use this, is a town called Nimicry. Nimicry is this 500-foot round sphere that has a town built on it. The whole thing has buildings and paved roads, and it is otherwise a perfectly smooth, perfectly spherical shape orbiting the greater moat that is Kamada. The streets are all filled with people who seem to be happy and going about their business. It looks like a typical material plane world, except for the fact that it's, you know, tiny. It's only 500 feet in diameter. Okay. The entire thing is a sham because Nimicry is a mimic. Yes. The entire sphere, the entire town and everybody in it is a single giant mimic. I love it. If you look very closely Every single person who's walking through doesn't lift their feet very high off the ground. If you're paying real close attention, you'll see a tendril binding every single footstep, holding it to the surface. It always trails this little filament that keeps it connected. If you try and pick up one of these people and physically separate it from the surface of the town, it will start to shoot out tendrils trying to reestablish a connection. And if you sever all of them, the person, quote unquote, instantly dies and reverts back into that weird amorphous flesh that mimics have. Mm, beefy. Yeah. So every resident within Nimicry is a construct based on someone whose genetic material the mimic has collected over the years. And it doesn't need to actually eat a person in order to make a copy of them. Something as simple as a single drop of blood is enough. And so everyone who goes here at some point in time has some minor mishap and has this little bitty injury that might be something like tripping on a loose cobblestone and scraping your knee. It may be there's this sharp little ridge underneath the door handle that the person who cast the door handle didn't file away. It might be a splinter poking up out of the seat of the chair that you sit down in. But whatever it is, you'll end up having some minor little injury, not even enough to deal damage to you, but it will be enough to get that genetic sample. And it is from that able to create a duplicate of you to walk around the town that retains all of your memories up to the point that the sample was taken. See, I absolutely love this concept, but there is no way you can convince me that the person that wrote this up was sober when they did it. (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know. So one of the things that it does to lure people in is because it retains all of the memories of each individual person that it collects a sample from and all of their knowledge, it uses that knowledge to create copies of people who have, say, crafting skills. And so it puts them to work making things. And so people show up here looking for things to purchase. And the goal of the mimic is to eventually create enough of a database and be known to make sufficient quality stuff that it becomes basically a multiverse hub to go to for getting things. 
that are hard to come by. And in doing so, it'll end up having this huge influx of individuals, which will allow it to pick and choose who it wants to eat. That's its ultimate goal. Okay. It's good to have goals. It is. (laughs) It's good to be king. And the last note on it is that while it can collect samples and create constructs of the forms of the creatures that it takes samples of, it isn't able to duplicate their natural abilities, just like any other mimic can't copy the abilities of the things that it imprints. Um, So things like a dragon's breath weapon or a sorcerer's spellcasting ability. It can create a dragon and it can create that sorcerer, but that dragon doesn't have a breath weapon. That sorcerer doesn't have spells. Right. If it was that sorcerer, it would have the knowledge of those spells. If it, you know, if it was a wizard, it would have all of the spells that it could remember and probably would have copied those into a spell book. Yeah, I was going to ask, as a wizard, would it have innate spell casting ability from knowledge? Not necessarily. Because if it has a memory, because again, the wizard's spell casting is from its intellect versus any kind of innate ability. But then you'd have to think that there's got to be some sort of innate spark to the individual to allow them to access the magic. So yeah, that'd be a weird question to ask. I would say that it would have the knowledge of the spells, but not the ability to cast them. Gotcha. So would it be able to write a spell scroll? It would be able to write the formula for the spell. But But creating a spell scroll requires you to cast the spell into the scroll. Scroll. Okay. Nope. That makes sense. I like it. Yeah. So it would have the formula for this is how you cast this spell, which an arcane spellcaster would be able to take and then potentially copy it into a spell book to be able to cast it later. Or, you know, it would be a method for gaining a spell to put in a spell book. Okay. I like it. That is fair. Okay, so the other location that is mentioned here in Kamada is the Tower of the Arcanaloths, which is another location that I love. It's a massive tower patterned after Sigil that contains the largest gathering of Arcanaloths in the multiverse. That sounds a little terrifying. And it also houses all of the contracts that the Yugaloths have signed in the Blood War. Ooh. Each one of the contracts is inscribed quote, on the screaming spirit of a petitioner and locked away in an iron cage. That's horrifying. (laughs) Dear God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the Arcanaloths, just because they're not devils or demons, doesn't mean that they're nice. This is true. They are neutral evil. They are pragmatic evil. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. That is their whole thing. The tower itself serves as a vault that also houses all of the cumulative history of the entire Yugaloth race, as well as every species that they have ever engaged in dealings with. So if they have ever encountered a race, there is record of it here. And there's record of all of their political dealings, all of their military dealings, all of their cultural dealings. So that way an Arcanaloth can instantly glean that information. They're like, okay, we need to go talk to this person on this plane, you know, Mm -hmm. on this planet. So you find all of the pertinent information for this is the culture that the person is in. This is, you know, the government that they belong to. Everything that could possibly be useful for contract negotiations. All of that research is accessible to the Arcanaloths and they can learn all of that before they go and talk so that they already have a leg up because they already know everything about that person's background. Gotcha. No, I I like, you know, foreknowledge is definitely the way to do things. 
And the way that the tower was constructed is it was constructed to focus the power of the Arcanalos, which is knowledge. And they can concentrate their will to access all of the records of the tower, regardless of where they are in the multiverse. Yeah, see, the Arcanalos are absolutely terrifying, but I gotta tip my hat to them. I gotta respect them quite a bit. (laughs) I love the Arcanalos. I love... (laughs) I love their concept. I love their aesthetic because they have this sort of fox humanoid sort of look to them. A lot of them, you know, they dress as scholars. They have the little spectacles hanging on their nose. They're wonderful. These I love remind them. me, what were the creatures in the Wheel of Time series? You had the snakes and foxes. I forget what the hell they called them. Oh, uh, yeah. But I- I'm getting that feel off of these guys. Absolutely. Yeah. If these guys are the foxes. Yes. <laughs> But whenever they access the knowledge from outside of the tower, it is a two-way connection. So whenever they tap in, every Arcanaloth that happens to be within the tower can pinpoint exactly where that Arcanaloth is in the multiverse at that point in time. Okay. So if they are wanting to do something that they need to keep secret, they either have to leave and go to the tower so that the other Arcanaloths don't know where they are, or they have to find an alternate source for the information that they're looking for. Gotcha. And then the final detail about the inside of the tower, and this is kind of squicky, so if squicky body horror stuff bothers you, skip ahead a couple minutes. Yeah. Within the tower, there are flayed petitioners suspended from chains from the ceiling over this massive vat. Well, that's where they're writing their contracts. This great big pool. And they're dripping blood from their flayed flesh into this pool. And that pool is the ink that the Yugoloths use to sign all of their blood war contracts. That'll do it. The pool is constantly kept warm and is constantly being stirred to keep it from scabbing over. Mmm, beefy. That's just... Yeah. It's time, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of squick. I know. I warned you. Yes. Um, so yes, that is the Tower of the Arcanaloths. Okay, so moving on to the third layer. The third layer is called Mungoth. That's just nice and guttural. I love Mungoth. Yeah, it sounds very Neanderthal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very smashy, smashy. Yeah, and it fits with the sort of brutal, violent nature of this particular layer. The volcanoes here in Mungoth have nearly died out. They're little more than just glowing embers of their former volcanism. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, volcanism. Yeah. Uh, Not Spock. The other Vulcans. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this layer is much colder than the previous two. The lava has solidified definitely into a rocky surface. You don't have the risk of falling through like you do in the previous two layers. The ground does still shake periodically from volcanic activity, but it's much less frequent and it's much less violent. Yeah, this kind of earthquake on these planes, I think the next one has some volcanic and seismic activity too. Something you can do as a DM is if you've got a phone or something, just set a timer in your phone and keep it in your pocket like on vibrate. So like every five minutes, every 10 minutes are at the table, everyone has to roll a balance check or an acrobatics check or fall to the ground due to the earthquake. And it's a good way that it will be fairly random that your players, especially if you have it on silence, won't 
necessarily pick up on the pattern. So you can just go and quickly reset that timer for you. And it kind of throws that air of unpredictability to the movement and the plane and the atmosphere. And if you really want to make it unpredictable, you just roll 2d20 behind the screen and you set the next alarm for that many minutes. Yes. So one thing that they put that I know doesn't work this way. They say that the reddish glow of the magma fades to nearly violet between the furnaces. <sighs> James and I both know that that's not how light and heat spectra work. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. If it's purple, it's going to be a whole lot hotter than red. Yeah, that's called ultraviolet for a reason. <laughs> yes, as opposed to infrared. Anyway, uh, this is magic. We don't need no science. Yeah, again, it was a different field of geekdom. I can grant them that. That's fine. Right, so the greatest danger here in Mungoth is not the lava, but the snow. You uh, You end up having snow that mixes with the volcanic ash, turning it acidic, and it will eat through most clothing and flesh. Now, I do like this. It is something that has not been near the issue it was in the late 80s to the mid 90s, because again, there were environmental laws. But for our younger listeners, there used to be this lovely thing we had worldwide, but particularly in the northeastern United States called acid rain, where you had the sulfurs and various chemicals, the sulfurs and nitrates from the factories were going up in the air. And then as it would rain, the rain would become acidic. But the same thing happened with the snows. So acid snows were also a thing as well. Didn't quite get as much press, wasn't quite as flashy. But yeah, so these acid snows, they would eat brick. They would eat the paint off your car. They could be pretty vicious at times. So yeah, I kind of feel this It's point. the reason why lots of stone sculptures, especially in England and Northern Europe, are not very detailed anymore right. because it dissolved the limestone that they were carved out of. Yes. Anyway, so these snowstorms can last for hours and anyone caught out in one of these snowstorms takes 1d3 acid damage every round. So you don't want to be out in this. Right. No, you definitely don't. Oh, one d three. That is a weird die to roll. You don't really see the d three anymore. Generally, that winds up being a a one d four minus one is how most people translate that. Yes, but a d four minus one means that you could you have get zero. Right. So this way, you get one to three damage every turn, regardless. The other way you could do it is roll a d six and divide by two and round up. Well, that's how you do it. Gotcha. That's exactly how you do a d three. Oh, okay. Because they don't make a D3 unless you say, get yeah, a I've D3 that has two ones, two twos, and two threes. Gotcha. So mudslides are very common here because you have a lot of that weight from the snow. The ground is going to have a little bit of residual heat to it. So it's going to melt the underside of the snow and it's going to, you know, loosen everything up. And it's it's got no plants there to hold anything in place. So it's just going to go where gravity says, which is That's down even though we don't know where exactly down is in Gehenna. <laughs> Absolutely. And with this, I would add again, you have these acid snows. And so they're going to eat and etch the faces of the rock and the magma flows and the basalt they land on. And depending on the type of igneous rock, some of that rock can be quite soft. And so it would be very easy for whole layers of that just kind of to slough off an avalanche down. Yeah, and then you have stuff like pumice that's very porous. So it's going to get down in there and eat it faster. Right. And it's going to be very abrasive whenever it hits you at 40 miles an hour. Yes. Just a general, a bad day. <laughs> yeah. 
So if not for the mudslides and the cave-ins that you get because of, you know, the acid eating the stone, Mungoth would actually be pretty much habitable. You just have to live in the caves, not out on the surface. And I could see that being something you would do if you wanted to build a settlement of some sort of small village. Probably nothing as large as a city, but like a village or a hamlet. A subterranean refuge would be very doable at this point. Yeah, I didn't include it in my notes, but there was one listed in the third edition Man of the Plains. It is a refuge created by an exiled fire giant and her kin. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's a refuge basically carved into the underside of one of the cliff faces here in the bottom of a deep gorge where they reside and they are more or less willing to take in travelers who get stranded in the plane. Gotcha. Themselves being exiles, they take pity on other exiles. Sort of, you know, that's the concept anyway. So the first location that we're going to talk about here is called Ontland. Um, this is the realm of Leviathar, the Mistress of Pain, who is a goddess from the Forgotten Realm setting. So she rewards both good and bad service in the same manner. She flays you with her cat of nine tails. Uh, so this is for all you with the Dami Mommy kinks. There you go. <laughs> yeah. The difference is, if you did good service, she lets you live. Aww. She cares. <laughs> she resides in the Frigid Palace, which is this structure constructed out of ice that juts from the center of her realm. There is a constant aurora that swirls over the palace during the nights in various reds and greens and blues. It is listed as the only expression that Leviathar allows herself that isn't pain. That is strangely beautiful and emo at the same time. (laughs) Oh, yes. I would totally want to see this. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near this lady, but I definitely want to see her palace because that sounds absolutely amazing to see. Yeah, okay, moving on. So days and nights here in this realm are nowhere even remotely close to being equal in time. You might get an hour or two of daylight followed by about 22 hours of the deepest, darkest night. This is basically March or September in Scandinavia. Gotcha. It's that window of time where the sun has finally started to clear the horizon. So it's not just constant night, but it's pretty close. Right. No, I'm right there with you on that one. So the book said that there are no creatures that live in the realm in the wild. And then it goes and tells you what creatures live here. So I don't understand quite where they were going with that. But uh, maybe there's nothing native possible. Yeah, I it's think a, that's it is probably what save those that are brought in. Right. So. so, yeah, I would go that there are no native creatures to the realm. Right. That makes and sense. That would make a bit more sense. Yeah. So the icy plains surrounding the palace are home to packs of dire wolves and also a variety of carnivorous caribou. They're not quite moose, but I love them. (laughs) (laughs) There are also the occasional rift or pit in the ice, some of them hundreds of feet deep, and they'll often have a magma pool that is broken through to the surface at the bottom of them. But because of the pervasive cold of the realm, you got to get within 20 feet of the magma pool to start feeling the heat off of it. (sighs) Yes, if it wasn't for like the weird mistress of pain, I'm not going to king shame, but definitely not my flavor and the oppressing cold. This place sounds kind of (laughs) cool. So there are a couple of towns that are actually scattered throughout this realm. The largest one listed is Smertsen, 
which has a population of about 10,000 people. Okay. It is by far the largest settlement here in this realm. And each inhabitant wears a white wolf pelt in the belief that it will ward off evil deeds done to them, even though it is very clear that it isn't very effective. The placebo effect is a thing. Just The placebo effect is a thing. So our cultural affectations based on superstition. Yes. But it is by far the most cosmopolitan of the towns, which means that if you come in, they're not just going to strip you of all your valuables and kick you back out in the snow. The other notable town within the books is called Aceburn. It's governed by a werewolf named Per Svensson. Per is a skin dancing wolf, whatever that means. Is it, is it hinting that maybe he's a skinwalker or something like that? I think so. Yeah. What is it? The Nagloshi from the Dresden Files. Yes. It also could be a different type of werewolf. I know there are several types. But he uses a true wolf skin for his transformations. Okay, so yeah. Going that does back to the- hint back to it, him being like a skinwalker of yeah, some sort. Uh, no, what I was thinking of is, again, we're going to reference the Dresden Files, but they had the, what was the Hexen Wolves, where they had to have the wolf skin belt for their transformations. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking this is running along those lines. Possibly. There is something later on that fits that better. Okay. So within Aesburn, visitors are regarded as fresh meat come willingly to the slaughter. It is not a place that you want to visit. I am not a gnome. I'm not a nugget. <laughs> if the town's larders are full, the travelers can pass safely through the town. If not, then, quote, it's best just to say that they've brought health to the community. Check with your travel agent before visiting. Just Yes. <laughs> so the weather within the realm is typically calm, and travelers don't usually need to fear the elements save the, you know, freezing cold and acidic snow. You know, minor things. Well, I mean, these are only running 1d4 versus like the 1d6 of just the ground and the magma from the other two layers. So we're stepping up a bit. Oh, we're getting better. Okay. Because sometimes the wind picks up oh. and just blows. And when the wind picks up, it can knock you down and it drives the snow before it. Okay. So if the snow strikes exposed flesh, the windblown snow deals 1d4 damage likely acid as in basically you're just getting sandblasted yeah and again depending on how you run your dm this is a great way to start throwing in some acid penalty checks to your armor this is a good way for a dm if you've accidentally given your party maybe that one piece of equipment that was a little too strong and you need to figure a way to nerf them real fast a visit here could probably break some of that equipment and do that for you just just being a little Uh, nefarious for you i would recommend against punishing your players for your mistakes fair enough but if you need to this is a way to do it (laughs) and another thing whenever you get hit by one of these gusts you have to make a strength check and if you fail your strength check it knocks you down and deals 1d3 bludgeoning damage okay so yeah you get hit by the snow and you get landed on your butt and it hurts a lot now one of the npcs before we move on that is here that I really wanted to focus in on is a human ranger that they call the reindeer Lahotek. She's a member of the ciphers. She's neutral good. Okay. And she does her best to warn newcomers of the perils of the realm. And she also goes around and slays wolves and sells their pelts in town. Well, because everyone wants a white wolf pelt. So there you go. I mean, there there's definitely a demand in the market. And if you're careful 
and you know what you're doing, you can turn the pelts of these wolves into a cloak of protection from cold. Ooh, snazzy. Just as an inherent ability within the cloak. This is not magical. This is just the inherent ability within that pelt. Okay. But you have to be careful because if you don't harvest the pelt with sufficient care, it transforms the wearer into a ravening beast. Oops. And traditional cures for lycanthropy seem to have no effect on them. That would be a hard... I don't know. Would you make that a crafting check, I guess? In 5th edition, that would be a survival check to skin. Okay. And it would have a fairly high DC. Yes. You would lower the DC if they were aware that they had to do it a certain way. Okay. And proficient with tools. If they possess that knowledge, it would lower the DC. Okay. It would still be difficult to do, but at least they would know that they needed to do it and roughly how to do it. Okay. No, I like that. So Lahotek is... As I mentioned, good aligned. She avoids interfering with the townsfolk because she doesn't want to have to deal with that nonsense. And her whole purpose here is to warn newcomers of the perils of the plane. She wants to help these people have the best chance possible of surviving and leaving. And Leviatar is aware of her presence and lets her stay because the pain experienced by being warned of something and then succumbing to it anyway is more substantial than the pain experienced unwittingly. I absolutely love that. That is extremely seditious and evil. And yeah, I love that. Oh, that makes my evil heart Twitter a little bit. I mean, that's where I'm slipping from that chaotic neutral to that neutral evil just a little bit there and giving a clap. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes me happy in a way it shouldn't, but it does. And then the other location here in this plane is a town called Portent. It is smack in the middle of the plane, and it is a town where deception and betrayal come easily to everyone. Now, again, if we reference things we referenced when we initially talked about Gehenna, everyone here is doing a whole one-upsmanship. They are throwing anybody and everybody under the bus. So the fact that this is brought out in a plane where this kind of thing is your baseline anyway... And it's like, yeah, these guys are, are deception and betrayal when that's the standard for the plane anyway makes it really stand out to me. It's like, oh, damn, this has got to be yeah. up there. So everyone in the town wants to rule the town. That is just something that happens to the people who show up here. Everyone who's here for any real length of time, they want to rule the town. But nobody can form enough of a coalition to establish themselves as the ruler of the town because of the nature of the plane. So what this is, is remember when they have the pirates meeting and was it the third? Yes. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, it's that. (laughs) Everybody's voting for themselves. So this is something that I couldn't quite wrap my head around. It says that the town is a maze of streets and it starts very organic and varying sizes of streets at the heart of town. And as you get to the outside of town, it becomes more uniform, more clear cut corners, more uniform width, more uniform construction. But then it goes and says that there's, you know, sprawling streets on the outskirts where all of the slums are. So no, I've lived in this town. I've lived exactly in the street (laughs) pattern. I know exactly what they're talking about. This is downtown Fresno. Okay. So you go and like the very center of downtown, they did try very hard to make it this nice grid pattern. And then because of historic building stuff you had to get around things so now there was weird one-way streets so like yeah i can turn left here oh wait that's a one-way street so you go down that's also a one-way and so that gets confusing and then you go out 
and it starts winding a bit around downtown and becomes like this amorphous blob. And then you get to kind of suburbia on the outside of where most of the city is, and it's nice straight streets again. And then when you get out in the country, you've got a bunch of farms and orchards and private property. So the roads start kicking around in different directions to get around property lines. I've lived here. Okay. Makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So at the heart of the town is the Great Hall. And there is this dusty, empty throne standing in the center of the room that is made from a single bone from an unknown creature. Nobody can identify what creature this bone is from, but it seems to emanate this energy that wards off anybody from really wanting to look at it. They sort of direct their attention away from it. Okay. And there are reports that some Yugoloths will occasionally show up in town. They'll walk in, they'll sit down on the throne for a little while, and then they'll leave with this sort of satisfied smile on their face. But nobody else who has ever sat on the throne has gotten any sort of inclination that it was anything other than a chair. So it's assumed that there is some sort of resonance there that a Yugoloth can access that most other creatures can't. Maybe it's all just an inside joke. Like, hey, I'm going to sit in this chair and I'm going to smile and they're going to think something's here. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a long con. Who knows? Yes. Like there's a single needle in the chair to draw some blood so the Yugoloths can just glean a little bit more extra knowledge forever who tries to sit in there. (laughs) Maybe. But sitting in the corner of the Great Hall is an old tiefling woman whose name is Laughing Jane. She sits in the corner and she has snakes growing from her eye sockets. And she speaks from all three mouths at once. Uh, That's not confusing. Human mouth speaks of other worlds and places seen in her imagination. The snake in her right eye speaks her mind and the snake in her left eye sees through veils of deception and truth and speaks both. Well then, good luck with that one. She's an oracle. Yes. That's how you would treat her. Basically, it boils down almost to like the fates. Yeah, in a way, just the fates in, in one weird fate trinity thing three and one okay i could get that but the fact that the one i mean it would make a lot more sense if the one could see and spoke only truth but the fact that it can lie speaking deception as well it's like well great what am i gonna do with that knowledge (laughs) (laughs) right so jane has claimed that the city in its entirety is actually the inner workings of the body of one of the first yugoloths bound by the sigils of the outer streets to keep it captive Oh. Furthermore, she claims that she is the one who bound the creature here, and the price for the binding was her eyes and her sanity. Okay. And as a result, there are various factions popping up. Some of them want to dig up and release the creature, while others very much don't want that. And so there have been bloody street battles between the factions that just start springing up as everybody is you know, flocking to one side or the other to try and either make it happen or prevent it from happening. I could see that if someone were able to release this particular Yugoloth, which is probably another Ultraloth, honestly, that it would eventually get to the creeping city, take it over, and then the city might actually enter the blood war at that point. Possibly. It may not be an Ultraloth. It may be a Bernaloth. Okay. It may be one of the progenitor proto-fiend races. Terrifying, but okay. Yeah. It could just be a relic from the Chaos War. Nice. Where, you know, law and chaos were fighting each other. You know, it could be something like that. Okay. So let your imagination run wild. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that is emphasized here is that the town has no need of a militia. Because fights here are always verbal. 
So that implies that the street fights are happening outside of the city, you know, on the perimeter, because that was where they said that they were starting to dig. They're starting to dig on the outside of the city, basically out in the slums, gotcha. trying to dig their way in. So that implies that these street battles are happening out in the slums. Okay. Because if anyone tries to attack someone in anger, they find themselves unable to do so initially. They have about a minute to sort of rationalize and calm themselves down. And if you are unable to do so, then you perceive that the fight starts and you start fighting, but it's all happening in your head. And every time you strike your opponent with your weapon, you're actually dealing psychic damage to yourself. Nice. So every time you take damage, you can make a wisdom save at a penalty to figure out that you're actually hitting yourself in your brain. Quit hitting yourself. Quit hitting yourself. (laughs) And if you don't figure that out, you continue fighting yourself until you hit zero hit points and drop dead. Well, as you do. (laughs) So that is how it be. All right. That brings us to the end of Mungoth. I like Mungoth. Again, if it wasn't for Weird Creepy Lady, who's, I do really like her palace. I love that she lets that warden stay out, that ranger stay out there. I kind of respect that a bit. If it wasn't for the cold, I could see myself, I wouldn't stay here terribly long, but it's definitely an interesting place to visit. Yeah. All right. The last layer is called Craiganth, also called the Dead Furnace, because this volcano is done. It's toast. The passage from the book is the entire layer swims in a void of oblivious silence. The only noise is the sound of feet scrabbling over the dark and icy stone. And the only smell native to the layer is the faint reek of brimstone in the ice. Mm, The pervasive cold within this layer is so severe that just by being here, you take 1d6 cold damage per round. Yeah, I'm passing on this one. This is a layer of no. It really is. The layer is so dead that not even the wind stirs. The air smells stale, and the only time you have a wind is when a portal from somewhere else opens up. So it's like all of those space movies yes, where they open the airlock, and whatever tiny little bit of residual air that was still within the airlock puffs out as they open the door and blows the dust away. That's what it is. I could see here having a group of, quote, wind chasers where they're trying to find, because where it says it's so dark and there's no sound. So they are chasing whatever wind they can feel, trying to find a portal to escape. Absolutely. Yeah. And it does mention that in the book that, you know, every time the wind blows, the petitioners suddenly have all of this hope that's kindled in them by the wind blowing. And they scrabble to try and find the portal. And as soon as the wind dies down, all of the hope is extinguished again. I mean, it's a punitive realm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So there are two locations here as well. The first one, I really enjoy this one, the night below. This is the realm of Shargas, the night lord, the orcish god of stealth, thievery, and cold. Shargas, I love his theme. Okay. I can't condone his methods. (laughs) Fair enough. That is very much a thing in much of D&D. <laughs> yeah, because he also has undeath as part of his portfolio, and he takes great pleasure in utilizing the undeath portion of his portfolio. He hates life, and he bemoans the fact that he even exists. 
That's hilarious. He is a nihilist god. He's like, I didn't even want to be here. I would be perfectly content to not exist, but then the orcs dreamed me into existence, and now here I am, and I have to suffer in eternity because I'm an immortal being, and I hate it. Yeah, no, I saw a meme earlier this week that made me laugh, and it was like, two people blinked in the 80s, and now I'm stuck here, and I have to do work and pay bills, and they don't even like each other anymore. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I felt that one. So Shargus uses his minions to spread rumors that his realm actually exists on either the second or third layer of Gehenna, precisely because he doesn't want visitors. Okay, I'm liking this dude. I'm right there with you so far. So he's banking on travelers either getting lost on the fiery plains of Kamada or getting flayed alive by the snows in Mungoth. <laughs> yeah, kind of liking this dude. So the night below is this infinite cavern complex beneath the surface of Kragan. Because it is a divine realm, its size is greater than that of the entire moat of Kraganth where it is contained. And again, these moats are planet-sized. They are not small. And not only that, but there are also caves within Kraganth that aren't part of his realm. The hell? <laughs> yeah. So light within the night below only extends five feet. Even the most powerful magical light. And infravision from second edition, which would be dark vision in fifth edition, straight up doesn't work at all. So it's a magical darkness. I got that. Yeah. Okay. It is a magical darkness that you can't dispel. I like it. It's basically magical darkness cast at 10th level okay. through the entire realm. Only Shargus and his servants are able to see through the darkness. So all of the orc petitioners that he has within his realm, they can all see just fine. Of course they can. And anyone who brings light into his realm immediately draws the attention of 10d10 orc petitioners. Go ahead and cast Mage Light. I dare ya. I dare ya. <laughs> so with vision so greatly hampered within the realm, hearing and smell are also amplified. We're talking about orcs. That's not a good thing. So those blessed by Shargus can move silently and can mask their scent. They had a 65% chance or better, just flat within okay. second edition. That would be like expertise plus. Yeah. That would be a very large bonus. It would be uh, an extremely be, like, yeah. That would be like having a 20 dex expertise in stealth and having uh, Pass Without Trace all it at would the same be time. A, it would be a plus 14 on a d20. Yeah. Because it's giving you a two-third chance plus, or better. Plus 13. Yeah. Plus 13. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is a substantial bonus. And if you are not blessed by Shargus, you have a much more difficult time. If you're trained in what was moved silently and is now stealth, your bonuses are halved. Ew. And if you aren't trained, you basically, you cannot stealth at all. You clank, you stink. <laughs> yeah. They can find you wherever. And if you aren't an adherent of Shargus, the only way you're getting out alive is if you're showing up with the expressed intent of hiring thieves or assassins. And even then only if your coin is really good <laughs> because the petitioners of Shargus who are the night orcs pride themselves in being some of the best assassins in the multiverse. Okay. I can see that. I'm liking that. Yeah, again, I am liking this. I definitely feel this layer. So the last thing here, there are rumors that you can find portals within Kraganth that lead to a fifth layer of Gehenna that exists below the dead furnace. But if anyone has ever actually found the portals, no one has ever come back to report it. 
I'm going to say with the initial information we got about Shargrass at the beginning of this, that he tells people that he's on the second or third layer, so people will get lost. I am pretty sure that he is the one that has started this rumor of the fifth layer. Oh, so I don't doubt it. Trying to go there and leave him the hell alone. And it is believed that everyone who has showed up looking for the fifth layer has ended up in Shargus's undead army. Uh, yep, I'm right there with that. Okay, yep. yeah. <laughs> I like this dude. Really like this dude. So the last location that we're going to talk about today is a location called Hopelorn. It's this complex built from obsidian and perched on a ledge. And it is the realm of the Lich Lord Melifleur, whose name was shortened to Melif in third edition. He didn't want to sound quite so French. I didn't get a chance to look too much, but I wasn't able to find Hopelorn in second edition, even though Melifleur was listed as an entity within Gehenna in second edition. Basically his realm doesn't show up until the third edition manual of the planes. It may be in an adventure somewhere that I just didn't find, but I couldn't find an indication of it. Yeah, Hopelorn's kind of an awesome name for a town. This is something you'd expect in Shadowfell. Definitely has that feel to it. It does. To quote from the book, Hopelorn is a mortuary city where sarcophagi glow like street lights and necromantic energies dance wisp-like over every boulevard. I'm liking it. It's got a Halloween feel. My inner goth is quite happy now. Spooky, scary skeletons. Yes. So the undead of all stripes are welcome here, but not the living or petitioners. To quote the book again, Melif regards the petitioners as, quote, pathetic losers unable to properly manage the passing of their mortal lives. Damn. (laughs) So within Hopelorn, Melif and his cabal of liches and other powerful undead casters, so like mummy lords and vampires and those sorts of individuals. They conduct various experiments researching into the nature of life, death, and being. So they are playing with the different aspects of life. Again, as a mortal, I would want to research these things. So I can't throw any stones here. I kind of like this place. And we mentioned last time, I think this is where the uh, Vaporigu, those weird undead elemental creatures, I think they come from here. I think they were the result of experiments happening here. Okay. And I think that it is them binding together the spirit of an Efreet and the spirit of a djinn, because that's the sort of vibe that you get from one of those creatures. Absolutely. On occasion, they capture a fiend to experiment on. But they are always careful never to capture a Yugoloth because they don't want to have the Yugoloths come and beat down their door. No, I mean, again, know your audience. I'm totally feeling this dude. I kind of like the Slitch. I'm okay with this one. And the final little bit it is also rumored that Melifleur was once a Yugoloth himself before steeping himself in the Eldritch Arts and then eventually becoming a Lich. Okay. Like I said, Father Bear is still my favorite. I've got a huge warm spot for Father Bear. Father Bear kicks ass. Malaf is not a close second, but definitely a second. Kind of liking this character. I really think that he would make an excellent Warlock patron. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. Pact of the Undying. Yeah, he is by far an amazing potential Warlock patron. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of Gehenna. Yay, we made it. (laughs) We did. We made it to the bottom and 
all the way back out. Yeah, like I said, this wasn't terrible. Like I said, it is definitely a bleak place, as the name suggests, but it does not have that overarching sense of dread and despair to it. There are definitely some cool places. Again, you don't bring a low-level party here. Bring a a higher-level party if they're very well-prepared. But definitely some fun stuff to do on the table. Yeah, you can... I would suggest if you're going to go into Gehenna, somewhere around the transition from Tier 2 to Tier 3, that level 8 to 9 sort of range, that's probably about the ideal point to start playing here. Maybe. I I was going to say 10+, plus, maybe 10 to 12. Unless you really want to have a very gritty, very deadly game and then i would say the earliest to do it then would probably be about level six because before then they just don't have the health pool yeah to make it fun it's just like you know dropping them in a meat grinder at that point right right into the meat grinder (laughs) yeah it would be so difficult to survive here that it would stop being fun right even for the people who like dark souls yeah (laughs) <laughs> the people who really enjoy that really hardcore game aspect, even they're going to be like, yeah, I'm not having fun anymore. I'm just dying. Which I saw a concept actually also earlier this week for a game scenario that we might want to go over and discuss at some point. But they called it a Groundhog's Day scenario that it was a very gritty, hard, high death rate for your party so your party starts at level one and they go and when they die basically that they keep their levels and everything but they reset to a point where they start and they go through so they might it would be very dark souls like where they're kind of going and running up against the same boss or the same scenario until they figure out or get enough experience to be able to beat it and move further on and i think if done correctly that could be a lot of fun yeah i think so too all right well that brings us to the end of the episode today Another long one because the planes are getting that way. Luckily, we only have one outer plane really left to do, and that is Bytopia. We're probably going to take a week or two to get our notes together and properly plan that, and then we'll get into Bytopia. So I don't know what we're going to be doing next week. We'll figure it out. (laughs) It'll be a surprise. (laughs) So thank you for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, all at under common taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. If you want to come support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron. We're also on discord and you can find a link to our discord in the show notes. We'd love for you to come and chat with us. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome to the podcast. We're very happy you found us. You can find our podcast wherever you find your other podcasts. As always, please subscribe and give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. All right. We'll see you next week. So stay safe. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.